0: Hey everybody, what's up, and welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I am your host, Robert Scavone Jr. On this episode, I have the privilege of being joined by David Karp of Carlton Fields to discuss two major First Amendment opinions issued toward the end of this term, Carson versus Macon and Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. David is an appellate attorney who specializes in First Amendment and defamation law, He is the chair of the Florida Bar Media and Communications Law Committee and frequently writes and speaks about First Amendment law. Most recently, he was part of a panel of judges and lawyers who spoke about this term's First Amendment cases at the Florida Bar Convention. David, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. These are two really important cases, and I'm glad that uh, you've made some time to discuss them.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, Robert. Enjoy
0: your podcast and looking forward to talking about the term. Thank you so much. I thought what we'd do is just jump right into it. But before we get into the first case, which is Carson, I'd, I'd like for you, if you could, just to give the listeners an idea of what the religion clauses say and what they mean, at least what we thought they meant up until these two recent opinions.
1: Sure. The religion clauses, as I'm sure everyone knows, are part of the First Amendment to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, which was passed after the Constitution was passed. And the First Amendment just really hacks a lot of uh, rights and liberties that go to our conscience and our ability to express our conscience and and participate in self-government. So it's a short amendment, but a lot is going on within it. And it, it begins by saying Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then it moves on to speak, talking about freedom of, the, of speech, of the press, the right of people to peaceably assemble. And as I'm sure you know, the amendment has been applied through the 14th Amendment to the states. But the two religion clauses are interesting because. I think the court has begun to to recognize that the the two rights that are protected can at time conflict. On one hand, the amendment says there shall not be an establishment of religion by the state. And on the other side, the amendment says the state cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. And both of the cases that we're going to talk about today sort of really go to the intersection of those two rights and whether they conflict or whether they don't. As, as frankly, the court found they they did not. In the past, the court has talked about these two rights having some overlap and states and government needing to have like a play within the joints, right? Some flexibility to kind of balance the prohibition on establishment with religion with the prohibition on the free exercise clause. And and that's really where the two cases today kind of come into play, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a good synopsis, you know, and essentially, the way I've always understood the establishment clause, at least, and the way I was taught it, is that it really is designed to keep the government neutral when it comes to religion, in the sense that It cannot favor any one religion, and it cannot favor religion over non-religion. Is that a fair way to look at the Establishment Clause? Yes,
1: I think historically it is. I think as the two cases today illustrate, the court has found that the Establishment Clause doesn't prohibit some government involvement in religion as long as it's not discriminatory.
0: But yeah, I, I think that's right. Before we get into Carson, let me ask you, there there is a fair amount in the majority opinions that talks about this idea that you just mentioned, this concept of discriminating against religion. In your experience in the First Amendment uh, litigation field and in, in being so immersed in First Amendment law, is this new nomenclature? Has the court in the past described this as being discrimination against religion?
1: I think that's a phenomenon we've seen really since the Reagan administration when the courts have been much more attuned to not pushing religion out of the public square. And I think as the court, the Supreme Court has changed and more conservative judges have been put on to it, that nomenclature and that analytical framework has really gained a lot of
0: prominence. Carson versus Mencken is a case that originated in the state of Maine, and I'd like you to give the listeners a little bit of a factual background so that they understand what we're dealing with.
1: Sure. The Maine Constitution has a provision that says every town or every unit of, of government, city, so forth, must provide children with a free public education. And when you're in a city or a suburb, of course, the city or the governmental unit, the county, will have public schools that the state pays for and operates, of course. right. But in rural areas, which apparently there are quite a lot of in Maine, it's just not economically feasible to have a public school in every town or within even driving distance of every population center. Because of that, um, Maine passed a law that said that the state would provide tuition assistance up to a certain limit to parents to either attend a neighboring public school or an approved private school in accordance with the First
0: Amendment. Now, just to be clear, the, the, the law requires that the school be non-sectarian. Yes,
1: that, that's right. And that's the issue in this case.
0: The plaintiffs here, which were two families,
1: lived in a rural area, and they wanted to send their children to Christian schools, and they wanted to use these state tuition payments to, to pay for that education. And the state, and these were otherwise accredited schools by the state. So they had passed all the tests to to be a proper educational institution. But the state said, look, these are religious schools and we won't use public funds to pay for your children's education. And so they sued and they lost in the district court. And the district court found that the state should prevail under the Establishment Clause, and they appe- appealed to the First Circuit, which upheld the district court and ruled for the state of Maine. And then they sought cert, and it got to the Supreme Court.
0: Okay. So just to, 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 to sum up the factual background, the, the two families want to send their, their children to religious schools. The state's have this program. Will there give parents a certain amount of a tuition voucher? Um, but there was this provision that you can use this money, but it has to be for an accredited school. And oh, by the way, it cannot be a religious school. It has to be a private, non-religious institution. That's right. The, the district court finds for the school district, the first circuit affirms we get to the Supreme Court. And what's the, the crux of the issue at the Supreme Court?
1: The issue um, before the Supreme Court was Was Maine's decision a violation of the First Amendment and particularly the Free Exercise Clause? And the court, in an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts, found that Maine had violated the Free Exercise Clause. The reason the court found Maine had violated the free exercise clause was that Maine had a program which discriminated against religious schools. This was a program that otherwise was open to any other type of school, Mm -hmm. except for religious reasons. And and in that sense, the court said that the, the law operated as a penalty on people who wanted to exercise their religious beliefs because they were prohibited from using tax funds that another parent who perhaps wasn't religious or didn't want to educate their kid in in a religious school did not have, They, they weren't penalized. They could use tax funds for private education. The state of Maine thought that they could not give the tax funds to religious schools without violating the Establishment Clause. That was their stated concern. That under the Establishment Clause, the state can't endorse religion or can't coerce people into in, into any sort of religious practice. And they felt under then existing law that giving tax funds to religious schools would run afoul of the Establishment Clause. And what's interesting is I, I think the court, both in Carson. And in two other cases, this term decided by by the court really went out of its way to say the Establishment Clause does not operate to remove the government from all religious activity, that the government can allow and support religious activity, as with this program, as long as it does so in an equal basis. If the government is going to use funds, taxpayer funds to support private education, it has to do so in a way that would be open both to religious parents and and to non-religious parents. I think it was Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor who filed dissents basically said the court has given enormous weight to free exercise and expanded free exercise and really sort of diminished the Establishment Clause concern. And, and I think whether you agree with that or you don't agree with it, it's probably an accurate assessment of the trajectory of the jurisprudence on the Establishment Clause, not just this term, but probably for the last 10 or 20 years.
0: Now, let me ask you, on with respect to the way this program was set up, It seems to me that the majority is saying that one of the reasons that this is permissible is because the funds are not going directly from the government to the religious institution. There is a pass-through here, and that pass-through is the families that want to use these funds in order to allow their children to go to school. There's a part of the opinion where the court notes that that this is a neutral benefit program in which the public funds flow to religious organizations through the independent choice of a private benefit recipient. And that does not offend the Establishment Clause. From my reading of this is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if the government had directly funded the religious schools, would the outcome have been different? I think the distinction you're making isn't quite what the
1: court was referring to, because in this program, the state actually did give the money directly to the schools. They did not give the money to the parents. And I don't know why, maybe they were concerned that the parents would spend it on other things. But this program, the money flowed directly to the schools. But I think the line that you picked up on raises the point that it was the parents who were electing for the state funds to go to the, the religious school. In other words, they had to opt and tell the state, I want these funds to go to the Bangor Christian schools. And so in that sense, I think the the point that that Chief Justice Roberts was making was that the the state is not coercing people to enroll in religious schools. It's the parents who are simply electing to use the Mm -hmm. funds in
0: this way. Yeah, um, but that, that's really a distinction without a difference. I mean, it, it, essentially, so so let's let's take the parents out of the equation, right? What if the what if the state had just decided that they were going to fund fifty uh, percent of the scholarships to religious schools and fifty percent of the scholarships to non-religious schools? Would this case have come out different?
1: I don't think so, and it's an excellent point because I would imagine in some states we're going to see programs that are broader than this program. I mean, this program was limited to rural areas that basically didn't have a public school. Mm -hmm. And it was set up, you know, for economic reasons that we can't can't afford a public school in a a remote part of Maine. But what, to your point, if the program had just been set up statewide, including in Portland or, you know, other cities in Maine uh, where you, there was no problem to go to public school. The public school was across the street. And I imagine we're going to see those cases in the years to come.
0: Yeah, well, that, and that's I think that's one of the takeaways from the dissent in this case and in Kennedy, is that the courts have now, while they, while they seem to be, while the majority seem to be saying that they're, they're cleaning up the law, I think the dissents in some way are saying you're actually making this a lot messier and we're going to wind up with a lot more litigation because of some of the ways that these cases have been decided. The court in this case relies heavily on two cases, both, I believe, written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza. Can you tell us a little bit about what those cases were about?
1: Sure. So Trinity Lutheran, uh, I think, was sort of like the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the path to this case. And that was a case that involved funds to pay for grants for nonprofits to install playground surfaces. I think it was like rubber, you know, rubber tire plate playgrounds. Right. And so that's not a religious purpose. It's like we want our, our children to play on, on new playgrounds. That, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Government does that all the time. But I think it was the Missouri Department of Natural Resources or a a unit of of the state government basically said, this grant can go to any school that has playgrounds, except one controlled by a church or or a religious entity. Trinity Lutheran challenged that and the court ruled in its favor and says, and, and on the same discrimination point, which is... Once you open a program to all schools, which I presume all elementary schools that have playgrounds, it has to be open to everyone. You can't discriminate against religious schools on the premise that doing so would offend the establishment clause. And I, I think the clear language, certainly in the Carson case, is that such programs don't offend the Establishment Clause, that the Establishment Clause leaves room for government support of religion so long as that support is not coercive and is done in an even-handed
0: way. The dissent in this case focuses on the court telling states that they must provide funds for uh, or two religious institutions, and instead of allowing the courts, or, or from what the dissent says, instead of having a may that the that the institute that the states or the governmental entity may fund these institutions, now the dissent is saying that the court is forcing states now to to provide these funds to religious institutions. Is that a fair takeaway from the dissent? And do you think that's a fair counter to what the majority's done here? I think it's. It's a
1: reasonable assessment of the choice that the court is giving states, because the choice is either you will offer programs and include religious schools in those programs, or really perhaps you can't offer the program at all. Right. And that's a hard choice for a state to make. I mean, is Maine going to do away with support for public education in most of the state and most of the rural areas of the state? simply to avoid supporting religious schools, that would be a choice that I think many states would not want to make.
0: Yeah. I think the takeaway from this case, at least, and this is reading, I'm reading from the the majority's opinion, says the states need not subsidize private education. Once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious.
1: No, that's right, and and we didn't talk about Espinoza, but essentially Espinoza was the same principle and a similar application of it. Espinoza—it's kind of convoluted—but it it was in Montana and it involved tax credits for donors, and the Supreme Court in Maine said these tax credits can be given to donors, but not to religious schools, not donors to to religious schools, and so um, the court struck that down for the same non-discrimination principle, essentially. It was a little bit closer because it was a tax credit, which is obviously a financial benefit that benefited religious institutions as opposed to a playground. You could argue, and, and I think it's a reasonable argument, maybe a good argument, that supporting playgrounds, even at religious school, is not really funding religion. Correct. You know, unless, Correct. unless the services happen to be on the playground, which right probably is not the case in 99.9% of religious elementary schools.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what one of the things that Justice Breyer was trying to point out in dissent is that the difference here between a Trinity Lutheran and this case is that in Trinity Lutheran, the, the money was not going to the institution so that it could advance its religious beliefs. It was going to the institution so it could put new rubber playgrounds in. Where in this case, it's obvious that the money that's going to the private schools, we know what's going to happen at those private religious schools. They're going to indoctrinate, if you will, or instruct and teach the the children in those schools based in part on religion. And I think that's what the, the crux of the dissents problem is with this, is that what you've in fact done is allowed, you've allowed government money to be used. To teach religion, and that's at least what the dissent thought was not permitted under the First Amendment. That's
1: right. And, and it was a three to six decision with the three Democratic appointees, Breyer, Sotomayor and, and Kagan in dissent. you know And unless there's a big change on the court, which could happen and things you know, life is unpredictable, um, I don't know that I see that changing
0: in the next decade. No, I think this is a, a new paradigm in First Amendment jurisprudence. And I, I listened to Dean Chemerinsky on a podcast about these two cases, and he seemed very concerned that that this in, is indeed a paradigm shift, that this case, that Carson and Kennedy really represents a sea change in how the court is going to interpret the First Amendment's established, uh, the religion clauses, and is concerned that Carson may lead to situations where funding of religious institutions will be less of an issue. I,
1: I think that's right. And and I think one of the things that really interested me was the fact that the majority opinion, the court's opinion really relied heavily on these two recent precedents that we've just discussed, right. Espinoza and Trinity Lutheran, and really focused on the Supreme Court's doctrine over the last 20 years, where the dissent made in in a way, an originalist argument and went back to the founding and said, the founders created the separation of church and state because they had fled Europe Mm -hmm. to escape state religion. If you looked at sort of the history and the tradition behind the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause, that was the principle at play. That was interesting to me because it illustrated how both wings of the court from time to time can use history really for different purposes.
0: That, I think, is a great summary of of Carson. Let's move to Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And this is the the football coach prayer case. Why don't you explain a little bit what the facts in this case are?
1: Yeah, this, this is an interesting case about a high school football coach, Joseph Kennedy, and he's had a tough life. And I think because of that, he, he is devout and he really turns to his religion for his faith. Even though, you know, he'd gone through some trials and tribulations in his life and really sort of found his calling, for lack of a better word, as a football coach, seemed to, to really love it. And uh, many of the students really liked having him as their coach at Bremerton High School, which is in Washington State. At the end of football games, he would go out to the 50-yard line and offer a prayer. I think it's undisputed that at least initially he was praying alone. But then the facts, I think, in my opinion, they get murky. People, you know, his students, parents noticed that he was praying and they, they asked to join him. And he said that he told them, hey, this is a free country. If you want to pray with me, you, you can do what you want. And over time, the record certainly suggests that a majority of the team started praying with him on the fifty-yard line after school. There's a dispute about that, and I'm sure we'll we'll get to it. Yeah, we will. You know, apparently, even the opposing team started to join him in in prayer after the school, and he also engaged in motivational speeches that were religious. And I I believe the record contains a concession that that he agreed these were almost like religious speeches. I mean, they were motivational, but they had a lot of religious content. There was also part of the record that said, at some point early on, he was also leading prayer in the locker room. So uh, in 2005, someone complained. It was one of the opposing coaches complained to the school district that Kennedy had been doing this. And the school district did not know about this or said it didn't know about it and spoke with him and said, look, you can pray, but in private, you can't initiate religious activity with students. And if you're going to give motivational talks to the team, they need to be secular. Mm -hmm. And initially Kennedy agreed. He said, okay, I will Wait until everyone's left the field and no one's around and pray, or I'll go pray privately after the game in my car away from people. And at least in this interview I heard with him, that just really bothered him and it just really began to eat into him. And he felt like he was being deprived of his right to do something really central to his conscience. And so he hired a lawyer. And he told the school, who told the school district, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to resume praying on the 50 yard line. And in fact, he, I think it's, it's undisputed really that at that point, he he sort of made a a little bit of a campaign about this. I mean, he posted about it on social media and he invited reporters to report on this and some state legislatures to come pray with him. And it, it became a little bit of a cause and no surprise. The school district didn't really appreciate that <laughs> either. Um, and they put him on administrative leave. And then at the end of the year, when his contract expired, because he was on a year to year contract basis, mm-hmm. they did not renew his contract. They didn't rehire him as the football coach. Right. And he sued. You know, the interesting thing is the school district won in the district court and won in the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, the Ninth Circuit's opinion, the very beginning of it basically said, this isn't a close call for the school district. (laughs) I thought that was a poor choice of words, given um, what the Ninth certainly knows about the Supreme Court and its track record before the Supreme Court. Because the reason we're talking about this case is that the Supreme Court decided to review the Ninth Circuit and overturned them.
0: Before we get into what happened at the Supreme Court, I I wanted to just flag for people, when I was in law school and as a lawyer, you're always taught, don't play fast and loose with the facts. I've read the opinion twice. And I have to say that it seems to me like the majority, is playing fast and loose with the facts. Generally, appellate courts use the facts that have been established below, particularly in the district court. Those are the record facts, but you have the majority. I'm not going to go through the entire factual record, but I think if you're listening to this and you want to understand how this case come, came out and why it came out the way it did, you should read the opinion, obviously, but you should pay particularly close attention to the facts. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just, I wanted to point out one area where I think there's a huge issue with retur- in, in terms of the facts. And I think the dissent is correct here, that the, the majority is playing fast and loose. And that's on this issue of coercion. And we'll get to coercion in a few minutes because that's really the new test. What the majority says and I'm reading from page five, it says that the district never raised coercion concerns. And it also says that there was no evidence that students were ever directly coerced to pray. And the dissent dismantles that. The dissent points out the district court further found that players reported, quote, feeling compelled to join Kennedy in prayer, to stay connected with the team, to ensure playing time, and that the slow accumulation of players joining Kennedy suggests exactly the type of vulnerability to societal pressures that makes the Establishment Clause vital in the school context. The court appeals affirmed the decision, explaining that the facts in the record utterly belie Kennedy's contention that his prayer was private and personal. And this court instead concludes that Kennedy's speech was private and personal. So on the coercion point, you've got the majority saying, wait a second, there's record evidence that students felt coerced. And the majority is saying that that never happened. And on this point of being praying in private, there's record evidence. In fact, Judge Sotomayor included pictures in her her dissent showing a huge group of players surrounding Coach Kennedy with his helmet raised in the air with a helmet raised in the air in the middle of one of these prayers. So for me, the, I, I mean, I don't know what to make of that, David, that the court it's, it's not usually what you see is the dissent and the majority will frame the facts in a different way. For example, it, you know, in a, in a violent crime case um if the if the dissent is on the losing side, they'll give more detail about exactly how much violence was perpetrated by the offender. So they'll add more color to the facts, but they don't have different facts. And to me, this opinion really does look like the facts are different when you compare the majority and the dissent. And I'm wondering how you think that plays out in terms of the final determination in this case. Well, uh, I'm going to
1: repeat a point that Judge Jordan of the 11th Circuit made when we talked about this case at the Florida Bar Conference on uh, the First Amendment seminar that that I moderate each year. So it was a great point that he made, and I'll just repeat it here. His point was like, this was actually a summary judgment case. And as every lawyer knows, summary judgment is not granted if there's a dispute of material fact. Right. which, As you pointed out, there's a very good case that at a minimum, there's a dispute of material fact. During the oral argument, Justice Breyer asked the petitioner's lawyer, Paul Clement, to go through a list of facts Mm -hmm. and said disputed or undisputed. One of my problems
0: in this case was the parties seemed to have different views of the facts. So I'd like to get the, this may be a case about facts and not really much about law. I'll list six facts that I got out of the record and just tell me if they're right or wrong. That's all.
1: And at the end, Paul Clement said, please don't send this case back <laughs> Right, you know, for, for a fact finder. Like, please don't do that. So I'll finish with this point. Please do not
0: remand to the Ninth Circuit for an application of the coercion test
1: but i think there's a com- compelling case that that's what should have happened the case should have been dismissed as improvidently granted or the summary judgment should have been reversed on on really not constitutional grounds but Price just that there's a there's a dispute of material fact that didn't happen and i think that didn't happen because this case was a vehicle for the court to advance the law in a way that the court has wanted to for some time Regardless of the outcome of the case, that's a development that we've seen with this court and and frankly with prior courts too in in the the 60s and the 70s where they have elected not to take the more conservative small C approach of only deciding cases that that are ready for a decision as opposed to taking a case because because. They want the law to move in a particular direction. Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion here, made it very clear this term, both in this case and in the city of Boston case, where he wrote a lengthy concurrence, that he wanted to bury the Lemon Test, which is a test that court used to use to evaluate whether an act constitutes an establishment of religion, whether a reasonable person would see that the state was endorsing religion. The courts abandoned that. And I think this is probably the nail in that coffin. I mean, Justice Sotomayor certainly thinks that and and said as much in in her dissent. But, you know, your point was excellent. It's so striking. You read the majority opinion and they say this was a private prayer. This was-
0: That's how they lead (laughs) off. They lead off with the fact-
1: You read the dissent and they have this photo of him surrounded by a throng of people.
0: This case was ginned up by Coach Kennedy. If you read the opinion and you read all the footnotes, you'll see that Coach Kennedy was not some guy who just wanted to pray and be left alone, right? He would, as you said, he would post on social media. He had state representatives out at the game, and they came onto the field and prayed with him. This was the coach thumbing his nose at the school district and saying, I don't want your accommodations, I want to be able to do what I want to do. And unfortunately, the the court rewarded it. If praying is so important to Coach Kennedy, he could have done that by himself. And that was a position that the school district offered him. He even posted on social media after the final game that he thinks he just got fired because he knew that he went out onto the field and prayed with students when the school district had asked him not to do that.
1: I'm going to depart from you a little bit. I'm going to disagree okay. with you a little bit because I I don't know that he did gin this up. I mean, obviously I don't know him and I'm not, wasn't a lawyer on this case, but I think that this is like a lot of employment disputes
0: mm-hmm. where I think he's sincere and that he is. A oh, I have no doubt. Person. Yeah, no, I have no doubt in his sincerity with his religious beliefs.
1: I think what happened is he got angry that he, that the school district said he couldn't do this. Right. And like a lot of people, he decided to make it a little bit of a political statement. Right, right. And I, I can't imagine he thought this was going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, at some point it did, and it was clearly headed that way at some point. And, you know, Paul Clement was his lawyer, who's an extremely well probably the leading Supreme Court advocate of our generation. Yep, um, or one of them. So it, the case got bigger than him, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think this actually started like a lot of employment disputes. At, you know, yeah. I, I, think,
0: I think it started that way. But I think at some point during the history of this case, we'll never know whether it was at the behest of his attorneys. I'm not going to speculate as to any of that stuff. But it certainly looks like there was a point at which coach Kennedy really ramped things up and put the spotlight on himself through the last three episodes that occurred in, in October of 2015 or whenever it was those last three games, he certainly looked like he was trying to put the spotlight on himself.
1: He did, but, but that's what impact litigation is about. Sure. Absolutely. The people who sat at the lunchtown counter protesting segregation they were making a point. They were trying to change the law. And I think he was too. And he succeeded. He um, you know <laughs> Whether did. you agree with his position or not, I don't begrudge him for that. He wanted to change the
0: law and he did. And speaking of a change in law, let's talk a little bit about what the change actually is. So the reason the school district was doing what it was doing was because it was operating under the assumption that a school can violate the establishment clause when it's seen to be endorsing a particular religion or religion over non-religion. And what the school district's concern here was, was that he was appearing in the middle of the field in uniform on school property with other students around him, whether they be students from his team or the other team. And the school's concern is that under the lemon test, which we're going I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about, the issue for the school district is, hey, Coach Kennedy, the quote unquote reasonable observer is watching you in this particular setting. And a reasonable observer is going to think that you are speaking on behalf of this school and that your religious activity is something that we are endorsing. So first, is that a fair assessment or a fair characterization of the school district's concern? And tell us a little bit about the Lemon Test. I think
1: that that's right, that that was the school district's concern. But I think it became heightened after they learned about what was happening, because at that point, they were on notice of of these prayers. And they felt like at that point, if they didn't stop them, then they're the perception that they were endorsing the prayers was even greater,
0: right. And, and just so just so I can make something clear here, David, the school district did not know initially that the prayers were happening because at least at the early stages, he was in the middle of the field praying by himself. And I think at one point he, ought, he asked an opposing coach if he wanted to pray with him. And that coach, was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Your school lets you pray and then mentioned to the superintendent, oh, it's really cool that you let Coach Kennedy pray. And that's when the red flag went up. So the school district is concerned with it being seen as endorsing a particular religion. And as you noted, once they're on notice, okay, now the spidey senses are really tingling. Now we've got to do something about this. Otherwise we're really gonna be seen as endorsing this. Explain a little bit what the endorsement test is or was under under Lemon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the lemon test, is, as I understand it, and, and I'm not a lemon expert by any stretch of the imagination, was essentially an endorsement test. If if a reasonable person would perceive the, the state action or the government action to endorse religion, it was prohibited under the Establishment Clause. That's no longer the law. And, it, it, and as the court, as the Justice Gorsuch points out, it probably hasn't been the law for some time. But it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court had like unequivocally buried the lemon test. But I think after this case, the lemon test is buried. Uh, <laughs> they may still be throwing dirt on the test, but it's it's pretty buried.
0: I want to point something out again, if you're if you've read this opinion or if you're planning on reading it. This is a problem for two reasons. Number one, the court is essentially saying, you know, well we we stopped. We stopped with the Lemon test a long time ago, and litigants and lower courts were wrong to be relying on this test. That, to me, is just absurd. As far as I know, until the other day, and I haven't checked recently, but if you if you did a Westlaw search for Lemon, it didn't come up as being abrogated or superseded or overruled. It was still a valid precedent on upon which litigants, particularly school districts, could rely on and upon which lower courts could rely on. So this, this idea that the Lemon test has is, is long been disposed of to me was just absurd. And as the minority points out this, in dissent, what the court does to bury Lemon in this instance is they cite to a bunch of dissenting opinions and current and concurring opinions in other cases where those judges, not majorities, have talked about how how bad the Lemon test is and how I can't remember what Scalia's uh, famous phrase was about it—that it's this ghoul, uh, you know, uh, masquerading around in First Amendment jurisprudence or something like that. But the a majority of the court had never overruled or cast doubt on Lemon. So, what's problematic, I think, is number one, you've got litigants and and lower courts relying on it, and number two, as the dissent points out. The court never really did abrogate or overrule Lemon.
1: It is interesting that three of the religion cases um, in this term all came about because the local city or state officials thought they (laughs) had to comply with the Lemon test, which tells you it's not fully dead if the state of Maine the school district in Washington, and the city of Boston are all changing their action based on complying with the Lemon test.
0: Right. And, and all of these places are represented by very good, competent lawyers who know how to read precedent and who know how to write briefs, and they relied on it. The, the final thing I wanted to talk about with Lemon before we move on is the majority is concerned that the lemon test relied on this reasonable observer and that's abstract and it's hard to figure out and things like that. Look, in the criminal world, we rely on the reasonable person standard all the time, particularly in, in, for example, in self-defense issues. So the idea that this is some sort of foreign concept that courts really can't grapple with, that to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And what's even more troubling and dissent points this out is that what the majority has now done has said, okay, litigators, school districts, lower courts, we don't want to use this reasonable person standard anymore. We're going to look at coercion as being the the touchstone for whether or not the establishment Clause is is violated. But we're also going to have you look at the history and tradition. So litigants, lower court judges who don't have the same resources, school districts who don't have the same resources that the Supreme Court has, now has to try to figure out based on history and tradition, whether a particular act is going to be seen as violating the Establishment Clause. I I wonder what your thoughts were about that new approach.
1: I think the new approach is very unclear. And I'm not even certain that the court set it out and its contours in this decision. I, I suspect they will need to refine their new test in the subsequent decision because you're right um they did point to looking at the history the historical practices and the history and tradition you know i guess at the time of the founding but they also another thread is this idea of coercion you know which is a legal concept that can be figured out through discovery and through a trial right I and mean, sure. that's why you have trials but which test is it? Because those are two very separate tests. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't tell from this opinion what the test is going to be. I mean, during an oral argument, a lot of the discussion was about this issue of coercion. Justice Kavanaugh, who, as you know, is famous for liking to be a, a coach for high school or, or middle school teams, talked about this a lot and how kids want
0: playing time. And so they could be right. coerced into participating in this prayer. David, that's that's something I think that people really need to understand and appreciate about this opinion. The majority says that there was no evidence of direct coercion. That's the phrase that they used: direct coercion. The dissent, in turn, says, "Well, is that the new standard that we have to find evidence of direct coercion? In other words, a coach or a teacher twisting a student's arm, or as the dissent points out, is coercion going to be?" Can it be indirect? And what the dissent is pointing out is that you have to put yourself in the position of a high school football player who is seeing his coach and other players pray and who is wondering to himself or on a female team is wondering to herself, if I don't pray, what does that mean for me? Does my playing time get reduced? If my playing time gets reduced, that means I don't have a highlight reel that I can send to a college it means it's going to affect my college scholarships and where I can go to college and that'll obviously affect how my entire life is played out so for young students the majority says that in one quote it says that you know high school students are mature and they understand this kind of stuff i don't know about you dave but when i was 16 or 17 years old you're pretty easily influenced people have to put this in context of what these young players are doing right many of these young players want to be professionals, right? That's the whole reason they're playing football for the high school team. And now they're having to wonder whether or not, and again, the coach may never say anything about the lack of prayer. The coach may never go to Jimmy and say, you know, I saw you weren't praying the other day. You're not starting Saturday or you're not starting Friday night. The kid will never know that. And I think that's, again, like you just said, the the test is really not clear. It's, It's gonna have to be fleshed out moving forward. But it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the the reasonable person test, the endorsement test, if you will, where the school district has to say to themselves, is the action of this particular teacher or coach going to be perceived by the reasonable person as us endorsing a religion? That test is now the coercion test. And it's based on history and tradition. And we're going to ask whether or not There was coercion or indirect, you know, we don't know whether that's direct or indirect, but that's what the courts are going to have to look at now is, is, is that, is coercion again, the, the touchstone of, of these cases moving forward? I don't know. I mean,
1: coercion is at least a test that you can build evidence and you can have a jury make a finding about whether there was coercion based on testimony, the testimony of the kid, the testimony of the parent, the testimony of other kids on the team, that's what that's what courts do. Right. They decide disputes of facts. The history and tradition aspect of this test is complicated and and I think problematic for courts because the first question is well, whose history? And yeah, what time exactly. period? Right. Like, what time period is the history? Right. And, and the other thing is like the First Amendment. It's an anti-majoritarian right it's set up to change the history and tradition of the country, to stop the history and tradition of state religions in Europe. And so I don't know that it makes entire sense to look at the countervailing histories and tradition that the amendment was supposed to change. Just like for the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, would you look at the history of tradition after the demise of reconstruction and say that guides the 14th Amendment, right? you wouldn't do that because right. the 14th Amendment, like the first amendment was a revolutionary amendment to change, to change our history and tradition and enshrine it with civil liberties. So I, I think it's a, it appears to be the test of the Supreme Court who sets the law of the land. And I, I think it will need to be refined and fleshed out but I think it's going to be a difficult test
0: for courts to figure out. Right. And as, 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 to conclude on this case, the, the holding really is and let's, let me get your interpretation of it. My interpretation of it is that in cases where an individual is engaged in private prayer, that is going to be protected under the First Amendment. And the way that the government would overcome that protection, if you will, is by showing that there was some sort of coercive activity going on. Well, I think some of the next cases
1: we're going to see is the English teacher, who at the beginning of class, just as or perhaps 30 seconds before the bell rings, sits at her desk and and says a prayer and the whole class sees her do that it's going to be the school principal who at a school auditorium goes up to give a speech and before he starts says a prayer to himself that Mm -hmm. obviously everyone can see him doing i think those will be the next cases where the court will grapple is that really a private prayer or is that a public prayer right We'll see what happens. I mean, I don't know that we have time to get into this, but another aspect of this case
0: was the free speech aspect. Yeah, I did case. want to ask you about that. How does the court resolve that? Because remember, this claim was a First Amendment claim and a free speech claim.
1: The court, I think, decides that the coach was not engaged in government speech. And they reached, a, you know, in the city of Boston case involving the flag. Flying over Boston City Hall, they also found that was not government speech. So, this was an interesting term because there were at least three government speech cases on the docket that were decided. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I think this case where they say that the high school football coach immediately after the game is not engaged in government speech is part of a trend that we saw last term where where they said the cheerleader who was (laughs) off campus, but posting about her displeasure with not getting selected for the varsity cheerleading squad, you know, wasn't engaged in speech as a student on campus that could be regulated, but was engaged in private speech. I think we're seeing instances where the court is giving public employees students, but certainly actors on campus, a lot of latitude to have private or really semi-private moments to speak for themselves and not to speak in their capacity as employees or government actors or, you know, as students subject to, subject to regulation. Um, Justice
0: Thomas, as Justice Thomas points out in concurrence, that this court really doesn't decide what the standard is going to be in those cases.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they have this all figured out, but that's what makes it so
0: interesting. Let me ask you one final question with respect to the First Amendment issue. Generally speaking, even under strict scrutiny, a claim by the school district that the reason it's prohibiting the speech is because it's fear of the Establishment Clause violation, that ordinarily would satisfy strict scrutiny. Is that still the case moving forward?
1: No, I think the court makes it very clear that that's not an adequate government justification. Um, It's not a compelling
0: enough interest. It's not compelling enough for the school district to say that we are genuinely concerned with an establishment clause violation. That will not suffice under a strict scrutiny analysis.
1: Right. I mean, the court makes that very clear. Mm -hmm. The
0: way they frame it is it's not a
1: compelling state interest to... Enforce the Establishment Clause more vigorously than the Supreme Court does, and right. we're telling you, the Supreme Court <laughs> is telling you, you can you can do a lot under the Establishment Clause. If you want to be stricter, that's not a compelling government interest.
0: Well, David, this has been a a really fun discussion. I'm glad we got the chance to do this. I know we we missed each other a few times. You're exceptionally busy with your practice, and I'm really thankful that you were able to carve out some time for me. We were going to talk today about a really interesting case called NetChoice, which really implicates Florida, and I'm hopeful that you'll be willing to come back on with me in the not-too-distant future to to do a quick rundown of that case, because I really do think it's interesting, and because it's exclusive to Florida, I think it's really important that we talk about it.
1: I would love to come back, Robert. Really enjoyed talking to you. Hope to do it again.
0: All right. Thank you so much, David. All right, folks, that is a wrap. Thanks again to David for joining me. I look forward to having him back on the podcast. As always, this podcast was produced by my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions, LLC. Of course, thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember to tune in for future episodes. And always remember, folks, case law is one word.